I invite you to take the Word of God and open it this morning to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Going to read together the first 13 verses there of Jeremiah chapter 2. Like to ask if you are able that you would stand out of reverence for the Word of God as it is read this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Let us hear the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord I remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits and in a land of drought and deep darkness. In a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend With you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we come before you seeking, Lord, your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your word. Our Father, you know exactly what each of us need to hear from you this morning. So, Lord, I pray that you would take the truth of your word and, Lord, that you would speak that truth to each of us here this morning. Father, would you bring conviction to us? Would you encourage us in faithfulness? 
Father, we humbly ask you that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you. Do a work in our lives, we pray for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today, we're continuing our series, Made to Worship. We began this series by considering the truth of who it is that we worship. Psalm 99 directed us to worship God for who he is and for what he has done for us. Then we were guided from Romans chapter 12 to teach us that all of life is to be viewed as worship. Each day we're to be a living sacrifice to the God who saved us. Last week, we were challenged by Psalm 63 as we saw King David worshiping God in the dry places, the difficult times of life. Our hearts were wonderfully guided to see how we can produce fruit in a barren land. Today, we're going to consider counterfeit worship, counterfeit worship. Things in our life that we worship other than God, or at least maybe more than God. And it's my prayer today that God's word would expose things in our life that are more important to us than God. In the Bible, there's a term for this sort of thing. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry today, you probably, like me, conjure up images from the Old Testament, bowing down before a carved piece of wood or a stone that has been fashioned or gold that's been beaten into some form, a calf or an animal of sorts. We tend to think that idolatry was a problem God's people stumbled over in the Old Testament. It's mentioned a few times in the news, so they had a problem with it too. But us today, maybe not so much. I would assume, I would hope, that you don't find yourself struggling with bowing down to a carved image of a cow that you have hidden secretly in your closet. Worse yet, an image of a cat or something like that that you would fall down before. Of course, now this is not to say that people today do not struggle with worshiping images. They do. This happens more prominently in other countries, doesn't it? Some of you have seen this when you've traveled on mission trips. Maybe you, those of you that have been to Thailand have seen this, how those go to temples that house an image of Buddha, and you have seen people literally bowing down, praying, burning incense, saying chants. Maybe you've been to the home of an animist where objects literally would be sitting on a table and these objects are prayed to and food and such is laid down before them. But my guess would be that most of us are not tempted to worship idols in that way. So that implies a danger for us in this regard. Since we don't worship the physical object of an idol, we can falsely think that we don't struggle with idol worship. 
I want us to see today that although the form of an idol changes, the heart that worships them does not change. The same idolatrous heart that people struggled with in the ancient Near East is the same idolatrous heart that you and I struggle with this very day. Our problem, you see, is the same. A sinful heart that seeks to please its own self above God's desire for us. The sermon this morning is not so much expositional, that is, of going through a text uh, and walking verse by verse through it. It's more topical. And so what we're going to do today is look at three main points, and we're going to focus uh, very quickly on idolatry in the Old Testament, then we're going to take a look at idolatry in the New Testament, and then we're going to consider as we conclude idolatry in your life, in our lives. I want you, I'm hoping to convince you that you can see that you struggle with idolatry. So something that we struggle with, quite frankly, every single day. The solution to idol worship is to replace it with God worship, with being content in him, standing in wonder and standing in awe at the God who has saved us to delight in him. Let's first consider idolatry in the Old Testament. You remember that after God brought people out of Egypt, freeing them from slavery under Pharaoh, he gave them the Ten Commandments in the wilderness. You'll remember Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is just that, to have no other gods besides the one true God. There's only one God to be worshiped, and it's the God who has brought Israel out of slavery, the God of the Bible. And then the second commandment states this, verse 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And now he gives this answer to what do you mean have no other gods? We're not to worship anything but God alone. And you see this commandment, the second commandment here, teaches us that actually anything can be made an idol. Says anything in heaven above or in earth below. And as we just consider the concept of idol, an idol and idolatry today, how do we consider this? Let me just give you a few definitions. Um, Tim Keller wrote a great little book on this subject called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. Wonderful little book. It's one of those nice books in that it's, in that it's little. It's like this, and it's about that thick, and it gets you to the point real quickly. In, in this book, he defines idols like this, quote, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, 
anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Here's another definition from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He defines idolatry like this. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. That's from Luther's larger catechism on the second commandment. Maybe we could just sum these things up like this and say that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give to you. Israel faced this temptation constantly in the Old Testament. The culture that they lived in and were surrounded with literally worshiped objects of idols. And Israel had to fight against that. There are many examples that we could look at in the Old Testament of Israel uh, battling and even giving over to idol worship. We'll just look at this one example that we read from, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 2. You'll notice, we'll just jump right in here and grab some things and then move on. But you'll notice here in chapter 2 that Israel worshiped God in the past. We see that in the first three verses. They worshiped God in the past. After Jeremiah, uh, God gave his call to Jeremiah to speak, he gave his words to Jeremiah to say, and in chapter two, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim this in the hearing of Jerusalem. And here's what God said. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. These verses describe how Israel was faithful to follow after God in the wilderness from Egypt. They were devoted to him. Israel was literally set apart and holy to the Lord. Everyone who came to eat, that is to fight against Israel, received disaster from the Lord. Just ask Pharaoh and his troops after running after Israel and what God did. But now we see the sad truth that Israel had turned and they were now worshiping idols. Verse four and five, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and the clans of the houses of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? So you see, they were wanting something, but God was not giving them what they wanted. They found fault in God. And they went far from me. And the text says they went after worthlessness and became worthless. That's a literal translation. The New King James there actually has idol for that word. They went after idols and became just like them. Concept is they were not pleased in God and so indeed they searched for what they wanted somewhere else. Verse number eight, we see that the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those that handle the word of God did not point the people to the Lord. They went after worthlessness. In verse number 13, it says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
They went after Baal. We see this in verse 23. It says, how can you say, this is God speaking to them, I am not unclean. I have not gone after the Baals. That is indeed what they have done. You see, Baal was a Canaanite storm god in the Old Testament. He was considered the source of fertility. He was credited with making everything fertile, everything from crops to women bearing children. Both men and women would crassly go to this temple of Baal and perform sexual activities to shrines devoted to Baal. There was literally temple prostitutes there that one could go to give of their seed thinking that then this idol would in fact give them fertility instead of trusting in God to bring the rain. Instead of trusting God to give of children, they would seek this not only from just God but also from somewhere else. The Israelites were tempted to look around them and see those that worship Baal and rain falling on their land and said, well, that's what we need most is rain. And so therefore, let us worship this God to get us what we desire. Israel was in a time of drought and difficulty because of their disobedience to God. They had sinned against others and sinned against God and God was punishing them through a lack of rain and times of drought, and instead of turning to God, they turned to something else to give them what only God could give them. We see it over and over again. Idols always fail us. Idols will never give us what we desire for them to give us. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keller tells about a lady that he knew who had experienced periods of poverty when she was growing up as a child. As she began to grow older, she greatly desired to have financial, financial security. She never wanted to be in a place of poverty again. So when she started dating, she passed over many good prospects and relationships so that she could marry a wealthy man so that she could have security that she thought finances would give to her in her life. So she ended up marrying a man she didn't truly love, but this man was very wealthy. But her marriage, he goes on to say, soon ended in divorce. And this led her back into the financial struggles that she had feared so much. She had looked in her life to seek her ultimate security in her husband and in her finances and her idol of money ultimately failed her. You see, in our own lives, idols are anything that you seek to give you what only God can give to us. The problem with the Israelites of old and with the lady seeking financial security is ultimately our problem also, a heart that trusts in something else to give us what only God can provide. 
Let's look at an example from the New Testament in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter three. Now granted, we don't find the actual word. If you did a word search for idol, you do not find uh, this word as frequently as you do in the Old Testament. But the concept, of course, is still there in the New In this book, Paul is combating false teachers within the church in the first few chapters. He teaches that the believers in Colossae about who they are in Christ and their new life that they have received since trusting in Christ. And now in chapter three, Paul begins to exhort the Christians to holy living based upon the mercy and salvation of God. Paul is basically saying here, now you are a new creature in Christ, therefore live like who you are. Stop living like the world, stop living in sin. Look at the first few verses here of chapter three. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated, excuse me, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is encouraging them as he's teaching us that we now have a new life by trusting in Jesus Christ. So Paul is now urging them to set their minds on the things of God. Very similar thought than Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. To not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul continues in verse number 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul mentions five things here that the Christians are to put to death in their life. Four of these five things have to do with sexual sins. He begins sexual immorality, which means to engage in sexual misconduct of any kind. Impurity deals with the uncleanness that comes from sexual sins. Passion or lust and evil desires are very similar. They both refer to a strong desire that has gone bad, desires that are out of control. Literally, we could define this to strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else. We see these pictures of good desires gone astray. And then fifth in the list comes covetousness or greed. And all of these other sins we could look at really flow from this one sin to covet. And that's actually what coveting is getting at. Coveting is wanting something more than you want God. To want what someone else has that you don't have. Instead of what, in trusting in what God has given you and being content, it's a desire to always want more and more, and more. We can call this the QVC syndrome, right? You never knew you needed this stuff till you watched this show, and then you realize you need all of these sorts of things. I didn't know I needed How could I have lived ever without this contraption? I must have that. 
speaks of coveting instead of trusting in what God has given to you and being content. And then comes that shocking little phrase. Probably not shocking because you know this is a sermon on idolatry and you know where I'm going with this. But if you're just reading through, you read of all these sins and then he says, and covetousness. And then he says, which is idolatry? (laughs) Maybe you hear that and say, well, that came out of left field. What, What are you talking about here? Which is idolatry? Paul's just simply speaking the truth that when we place a desire above God and do anything we can to get it, that is idolatry. Here in this text, the example is sexual sins. God's word instructs us on the proper boundaries for sex. Yet here in this passage, we see the sinful heart saying, I want sex on my terms. I want sex outside of God's instruction. And so one begins to worship not God, but their own sexual desires. You see, it's the sinful heart that thinks that having sex outside of covenant marriage will make you happy and will make you joyful and will give you what you think you need. But worshiping that idol will only bring you loneliness and sadness in your life. If we take our desire for sex and elevate it above our desire to follow God's word and instruction, that is idol worship. In reality, there is no difference between sleeping around or viewing pornography or lusting after someone else than falling down on our knees before a golden calf. It's all a form of idolatry. Like for us to conclude with pressing this point home in our own lives. Seeing ways in in our life that we fight against this battle. And as we consider these things in our heart that longs, maybe even coveting for things that God has not given us, that we struggle with contentment, to say, well, how do I stop worshiping idols? How do people in the Bible stop worshiping idols? How are we in our lives to stop and to fight idolatry? Well, here's the answer. You can't stop worshiping an idol, you have to replace it. You have to replace it. Jesus must become more desirable to our hearts than our idols. We have to find more pleasure in worshiping God than in worshiping our idols. We have to find more pleasure in actually living in obedience to God's instruction than we do in acting how we think is best. Fellow brother and sister in Christ, is this not a lifelong process? This process that Paul described in Colossians chapter three of putting to death our sinful desires. We must continue to be active against them. All of us are imitators. 
All of us are worshipers. You will worship something or someone. There's no neutrality in this concept of idolatry. We're either being conformed to an idol of the world or to God. So how do we fight against idolatry? Let me say just very clearly that we must begin at the cross. We must begin at the cross of Jesus Christ. For you see, we must see in our own life that we struggle with worship. And we must see that we are sinners. We must come to that conclusion in our own life and realize that we need a Savior to save us from our sin. That we have sinned against God just the same as Israel in the Old Testament bowed down before images. Likewise, we have offended God by worshiping and seeking what we want most in our lives. And you see, this is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has sent Christ to come and die for those who have worshiped idols. God has sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth for those who are broken and realize they have sinned against God. And so this fight begins at the cross. It begins by us coming and confessing that we are sinners. And we are unclean. And we need salvation. If you're not trusting in Christ this morning that he died on the cross for your sins, I beg and plead with you. Will you see your sin this morning? Do you feel your guilt this morning against God? That you've sinned against him? Will you come to the cross of Jesus Christ in faith as Christ has provided the salvation for sinners, for idol worshipers, it begins at the cross. Secondly here, or actually that was point number zero. I made a zero. That's the foundation. I don't know if you can do that, but we'll call that point zero. And, and first here, how do we fight against idolatry in our own lives? First thing, we must spend time consistently reading or hearing or meditating on God's word, the Bible. We must spend time consistently reading or hearing or meditating on God's word, the Bible. Romans 12 instructs us to be transformed and changed by the renewing of our minds. Colossians 3 instructs us to set our minds on things that are above. How in the world are our sins and idols going to be exposed if we're not hearing from God's word and the light of his word to shine its light upon them? How in the world are the sins of coveting going to be exposed in our lives if God's word is not there to bring conviction? How are we going to know how God desires for us to live apart from his word to us? How are we to know if we're worshiping an idol, if something is an idol or not? Not. 
Remember the priest in Jeremiah chapter two. They were prophesying in verse eight, it says, by Baal. They were not prophesying from the word. There was a drought of the word of God in that time. And if we're going to fight against idolatry, we must constantly have the light of the word of God shining in our lives to expose our sin of idolatry. In the various stages of life, how are we going to know to navigate them if it's not for the instruction of God's word? How are we going to find contentment in knowing God if we don't find that through his word? Young people, as you come up and you're coming up through high school and you're coming to this point of graduating of high school and looking to go to college or maybe you're in college and then you're looking on of where you're in these crossroad periods of where you're going to go in life, how are you going to be different from this lady that was mentioned before that sought financial security and that was all that she wanted? If she had financial security, then she would have a good life. How are you going to be different from her? if it's not for the instruction of God's word in your life. Because you could give your whole life over to something you think that'll make you happy and you're going to find out in the end it's not going to make you happy. It's only the word of God that is going to show us these things. It's only the word of God that is going to instruct us on how God is to be worshiped. I mean, just think about it for a moment. If, if we're not wanting to commit the sin of idolatry in our life, how are we going to find out how God wants us to live and to be obedient to that? It's only going to be found in the word of God. So I encourage you, I exhort you, to come to God's word, to listen to it, to meditate upon it, to hear it being read, to make time in your day to hear from the word of God that God's word may work in our lives and show us our sin. We need God's word in the battle. Secondly, we need each other we need each other. We need one another. Praise God that we don't walk this path alone. God has given us one another, to ch the church, to help us in our battles and to help us in our struggles, even our struggle against idolatry. Have you ever found this to be true in your life? That when you go through maybe a period of sin and disobedience, there's a sinful pull that seeks to take you away from church. Have you seen that before in, in your life of maybe going through just a time of struggle? You're just kind of complacent about things and you're just, and, and there's just kind of this pull to take you away from church. Oh, I can, won't be something, I just missed the Sunday, I'll, I'll go the next and then the next comes and I'll, I'll catch the next one. Uh, I can catch this one and I'll go and slowly there begins to come a, a, a wedge in the path. Miss Sunday here, begin to miss a home group there. And before you know it, what happens is you can be surrounded 
with other people whose main goal in life is not to worship the Lord, who are living for their own wants and their own desires. And you slowly begin to be led astray. We need one another in this fight. On the flip side of that, aren't you so encouraged by meeting and being together with other believers? Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to gather together with other people who are seeking to live in obedience to the God who has saved them? And to be able to join together and to sing together, to pray, to confess that we're sinners together, and to hear God's word of the gospel of Jesus Christ and just let that wash over you and to be together. Aren't you encouraged by that? I am super encouraged by that. Doesn't it bring encouragement to your soul to look around here this morning and say, hey, I'm not so weird after all for believing the Bible. There's actually other people that God is saving and working in and moving in and changing and making more like himself. <laughs> I'm not so weird after all because we can, ha let's just be frank, I'll be frank before you, right? In the world and in society, you just think you're a weirdo, right? You, you believe these things, maybe at work you face that or you see that where you have this, this pressure of people that do not worship God, it's just so encouraging to come together with other sinners who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and to praise him together. We need one another in our battle over idolatry. And I beg you also of this this morning to place a high priority on being obedient to the word of God by coming to corporate worship to fellowship with one another in your life. We need one another. Does not God use other people to help show you that you are a sinner? If you don't believe that, just get married, right? If you don't believe that you are a sinner. We need one another to help us. We need one another to show us our misplaced trusts in life. We need others to point out and to show us our discontentment and to say, hey, where are you placing your hope? In landing this job at this place or actually of knowing that you're forgiven by Jesus Christ and he's going to lead you? Where are you placing your hope in these things? We need relationships with one another to point out our sin of idolatry. We need one another. And lastly this morning, I'll just say that we fight idolatry best when we delight in God the most. We fight idolatry best when we delight in God the most. As we learn to delight in God more and more, we will find less and less need to find happiness, fulfillment, and security in the idols of this world and the idols of our heart. It's hard to delight in God when you're really busy coveting, right? That's a hard thing to do. <laughs> God, why, why couldn't I have this house that that person has? To live in this place that this person lives. God, I would be happy in life if I could just have that. That person's job, 
To be able to have that person's job, that would just make life so much easier if I could have that. If I could just attain to this, to this next level, then, Lord, I know that I would, be, I would be happy and I would be content, right? If I only get this, then I'll be content. Then we can look around and struggle with contentment. We can look around and we can start coveting everything around us, even as the Old Testament warns us begin to see other relationships. How come my relationship can't be like that? How come my children can't be like their children? I mean, then this would really be something that I could live in obedience to God over. How come I just can't live in this place and that place and have this and have that? And we begin to have a covetous heart when we're not delighting in what God has given us. And trusting that God knows best and God will be faithful to give you exactly what you need. God will provide it. Not what you covet after, right? I've not found that one. If you find it, let me know. God will give you the covetous desires of your heart. I've not seen that in here. Right? God calls us to delight in him. And it's hard to worship God when we're busy, coveting, wanting what God has not given to us. I pray that we would get to the point in our lives that we would so delight in God that we could echo the words of Job from the Old Testament. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. May we ever be captivated by God's mercy. May we ever be amazed at what Christ has done for us in the cross. And may we always, as Pastor Adam pointed us back to in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2, always be amazed by the mercies of God in our life to focus on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. What more could we want than the forgiveness of sins? What more could we want than to be forgiven of our sins? May we find joy and delight in worshiping God. We need the Bible. We need one another. We must delight in God the most. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess together that we are sinners. Father, even we can see that our own desires pull us away from you and trust in you. We're so prone to covet and to want what others have instead of trusting what you have done for us. Father, would you do a work in our lives that would bring us back to the cross of Jesus Christ? Lord, help us focus upon what Christ has done for us and the mercy he has provided us. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us where we've fallen short. Oh God, have mercy on us through Jesus Christ. 
continue to change us, continue to work in our lives as we trust in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.